hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Pastor John was referring to, I think, something that happens this time of year as we see people in the world singing about Christmas. And there is distinction Pastor John made was admiration versus true, genuine faith and obedience. And uh, there certainly is that. You can find many people talking about Christmas that don't know the Christ of Christmas. And I don't know about you, but I'm more and more amazed at what goes on in the name of Christmas. Uh, I was in a store this week picking up some needed items, and I heard the lyrics of a song that was playing. And I thought to myself, even though they're using the word Christmas, this song has nothing to do with Christmas. And uh, more than a few times during the last few weeks, that has been the case. Sometimes it's a love song in the name of Christmas. It has everything to do with a romantic relationship and nothing to do with Christ. I recently saw an article that highlighted the most popular songs about Christmas. Here's the most popular right now based upon people who are listening to songs. And I looked at the list and the top five had zero to do with Christ. We cannot let the world dictate what we think or sing about Christmas. And if we do, you know, it's like children who they open a present and there's a box and the wrapping paper and maybe the bow or whatever else is coming with this gift. And they open the gift and then after a few moments, the focus of the child turns not to the gift or to explore the gift. It's to play with the paper. It's to play with the box. Anybody ever seen that? And then you think, I spent money on that gift, and now the kid's only interested in the box. Why didn't I just get the box, right? But sometimes we do the same thing when we think about the trifle, and we don't think about the truth. And you can have truth small t or truth capital T. It's really Christmas is about the truth capital T. It's about Christ. It's about Jesus. It's about the Word becoming flesh. John says that here, the Word became flesh. What should we do as we celebrate Christmas? We should be celebrating Emmanuel, God with us, the Word becoming flesh. A preacher named John Chrysostom said this, he became son of man who was God's own son in order that he might make the sons of men to be children of God. And of course, he's talking about, not everyone would be talking about, but Chrysostom was talking about those who through faith, as John says in this passage, become children of God. It's through faith that a person becomes a child of God through faith specifically in the Word of God in Christ, who is the true light, as this passage says. He says in verse 12, but as many as received him or welcomed him by faith is the idea, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe, there's faith, in his name. That's what Christmas is about. Now, obviously, his coming in the flesh was for a reason. He came not just to be with us, although that's a part of what this text teaches. He came in order to die. And John begins writing his gospel with identifying here the Word in verses 1 through 13, some truths about who the Word is. And then in verse 14, he declares the truth of the incarnation, the Word made flesh. And who is the Word? According to this passage, he existed with God at the time of creation. He existed in relationship to God. 
because it says the word was with God, but it also says the word was God. So the word is a divine person. Going on, John identifies him as the source of living things, of all things. Verse 3, it says, all things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. And of course, he's the source of life for the world. He's the source of light for the world. And we know as John continues to write, he's the source of eternal life. Of course, he's the source of salvation. And if you were to just consider these first few verses and think about the word prior to his creating all things, majestic, along with the Father and the Spirit, holy, 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 sovereign, immortal, incapable of pain, incapable of any loss, completely satisfied in himself without need of anything, completely happy. And he had been so from eternity with the Father and the Spirit. For what reason was there an alteration of that blessed state? One songwriter said it this way, Thou who wast rich beyond all splendor, all for love's sake becamest poor. Thrones for a manger did surrender. Sapphired paved courts for stable floor. Thou who wast rich beyond all splendor, all for love's sake becomes poor. We certainly see the love of God in the incarnation. We see many truths about God. We also see in the end the glory of God in the incarnation. That's in part what this verse is about. Frank Hopton wrote those words, that first stanza of that hymn as he traveled over the mountains of Sejuan, China. Shortly after missionaries John and Betty Stam had been arrested and martyred, their baby girl, as I understand, was left with the equivalent of $10 in a sleeping bag, hidden and when a fellow believer came and looked at their dwelling, he found her and saved her life. What would motivate those two to go to a place unusual, far distant from their own home, leaving the comforts of family, friends, their native country, it was love for the Lord. It was love to communicate the gospel of Christ to people in a place far, far away. And John and Betty Stam did in a small sense what, of course, the word did as he came from heaven. That song says, rich beyond all splendor. Thrones for a manger. He left sapphire paved courts. I think that's a reference to Exodus when the elders of Israel and Moses and Aaron and Aaron's sons gathered together and they saw the God of Israel and under his feet was this sapphire-like pavement. Just an earthly exhibition of the glory of God and what he certainly had in eternity, that he left. We have many statements that explain what he left and what he did. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, which I believe is also a text that Frank Hufton must have considered. Paul says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. And we're not talking about any kind of prosperity gospel. 
but actually the richness of salvation, the richness of God's mercies to open up that inexhaustible fountain to us that we might receive the water of life. This is why the Word who was with God created all things and then came into this world. He became flesh. Look at that in verse 14. It says, and the Word became flesh. It doesn't simply say he became human. It actually uses a term that's unmistakable, refers to the physical body. There are other ways that John could have said that Jesus became a man, but John uses a word that's very direct. He uses the Greek word sarx, which means flesh, refers to the physical aspect of man. It can be taken as an indication, kind of a part for the whole, an indication of a whole person, or in some cases it refers to all people, like when Isaiah said, all flesh is grass and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field, the grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows upon it, surely the people are grass. Jesus used uh, the term in John 17, verse 2, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all that you've given him, he may give eternal life. But here, the word who was not flesh prior to becoming flesh existed. He existed, and God is a spirit. He existed from all eternity until this point in time as God, with the Father, dwelling in union, fellowship with the Father and the Spirit. But now he humbles himself by taking something to himself. That's how Paul describes the emptying of Christ. Sometimes that passage in Philippians is discussed in terms of what exactly did he empty himself of. And the song says, emptied himself of all but love. And that's been criticized in part because we know that he did not empty himself of deity as he came. But how did he empty himself? He emptied himself by taking upon himself the form of a servant. And what does it say? And was made in the likeness of men. Unless we think that Paul's statement there is just that he's like a man, we have to balance that with other passages like this one, which simply says the word became flesh. This isn't a being who is somehow only spiritual and only appearing to be flesh. That would be the ancient heresy probably still has some followers today by a different name of docetism. The word docheo in Greek means to seem, and there were those who taught that he just seemed to be a man. They thought that this idea that, that, that somehow the physical and uh, flesh and the body was evil, that material things were of a lesser value in some way, and maybe inherently evil, and that's just not the case. Obviously, we are sinners, and as we sin, we sin with our bodies, and our body is corrupted because of sin, but there's nothing sinful about the human body. If there was, then Adam and Eve, who both had a body, would have been sinful before they ever made the choice to disobey God. And so Jesus... Here, it calls him the Word became flesh. And not only did he become flesh, he certainly had a human spirit or soul. And you have to kind of walk a careful line when you start to think about the person of Christ so that you don't step one way or another to the point of making an error. Because there are some who just sort of thought that Jesus came, yes, he did take a body, but he didn't take a human soul. Leaving out that aspect of man, it's almost like God the Logos came and he sort of just clothed himself with a body. 
And the problem with that is, again, it denies Scripture. There are things where Jesus talks about his immaterial part, that spirit within him. Now my soul has become troubled, John chapter 12, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. A little bit later, he said, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. One catechism puts it this way, how did Christ, being the Son of God, become man? Christ, the Son of God, by, became man by taking to himself a true body, which is what John says very directly here, but also a reasonable soul. Jesus became a man. He did not leave his deity behind. And that's the mystery, really, of the incarnation, that God could become man. And we have a being who is fully man and fully God, one person with two natures. The hypostatic union is what it's called. It's this person who is like no other. And as he came and became flesh... We understand, of course, he became flesh through the descriptions in the Gospels, which are no uh, fiction. He did experience hunger. He did experience thirst. He became tired in his journeys. Remember, he slept in the boat. And, of course, he suffered and bled and died, and that was the reason he became flesh, so that he could die. As he existed as God from eternity, God is immortal and could not die, and so he had to become flesh. And Paul says there in Philippians, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, And being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. There's been much ink spilled about that passage for different reasons, but when John, excuse me, when Paul says there he existed in the form of God, I believe what what Paul is saying is that From all appearances, if you were to look at the Word, if you were to look at Jesus prior to His coming in the flesh, you would have beheld God. That's how the angels would have seen Him. That's how any person who is privileged with that sight would have seen Him. He existed in the form of God. But then when He came, He took upon Him the form of a servant. It's how people would outwardly see Him. And of course, that's part of the reason they rejected him. Because even though he claimed to be the Son of God, and his works testified to the fact that he was the Son of God, and there are many other witnesses to that truth, there was still a rejection of him because they said that you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. They wouldn't believe that God would come in the flesh. And Jesus, of course, challenged that. Even in the Gospels, he challenges those who are debating him and challenging him with questions. He asks them, how could this one whom David uh, calls Lord also be his son? Who is David's son also be called Lord? How could that be? Unless, of course, God came in the flesh. And the word here, as John has given us an introduction in verses 1 through 13, of course, is God. But now, verse 14, this great proclamation and statement and now reality is that the word became flesh. And we can think in terms of how the gospel shows that, but and, and don't forget that this This coming in the flesh is not a temporary thing. This next statement in the text when it says, and dwelt among us, is not a temporary thing. Although he is in heaven, what he did not leave behind is the fact that he's a man. In fact, that's the whole point of the resurrection. When he rose from the dead and he went into heaven, he ascended into heaven, he went in his body. 
And so following this statement of the incarnation in verse 14, we also have the reality of a permanent habitation. Notice that in verse 14, it says, and dwelt among us. You might have in the margin, tabernacled. You have that in your margin, in your Bible, tabernacled. He tabernacled with us or among us. That allusion is significant. The word that John uses here is related to a word for tent or tabernacle. So some would even take it this way, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And let's just ponder that for a moment. Think in terms of Israel's history and God coming and being with his people, how? He gave them instructions for a tabernacle and they built a tabernacle. And in the wilderness, they took that tabernacle with them. But whenever they would set up camp, that tabernacle would be right in the center and God would dwell with his people. But it was only temporary. And there were times, of course, because of the sin of the people that God would remove himself from the middle of that camp and meet with Moses at a distance in the tent of meeting. Because of the sins of the people, God could not dwell among them right with them. Otherwise, he would destroy them as they sinned. And there were multiple times, of course, we see him judging those who sinned right in his presence. The temple was later replaced, excuse me, the tabernacle was later replaced by the temple. But even the temple at different times fell and was destroyed. Why? Because of sin. Because of sin. But here is a permanent tabernacle, and really a permanent dwelling among God's people as Jesus came in the flesh, as the Word was made flesh and dwells among us. Emmanuel would be a, 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 a similar thought that God is with us. John has identified him in verse 2, as, at verse 1, as God now this same one who is God comes in the flesh and he tabernacled with us. What does that mean? That God is with us? Well, again, spell it out in the gospel. We understand why he came. But even as he ascended into heaven, he ascended in his body and he is coming again. And for all of the ages to come, God will be in that way with us. He'll never leave this humanity. This is a permanent cohabitation with us in flesh. Spurgeon had a great meditation on that name, Emmanuel, God with us. He asked the question, and I've shared this before, but it's worth sharing again. Do you know the full meaning of that name, Emmanuel, God with us? He answers the question, no. He who knows it, best knows little of it. Alas, he who knows it not at all is ignorant indeed, so ignorant that his ignorance is not bliss, but will be his damnation. Why would it be his damnation? Because to not believe that Jesus has come in the flesh is actually to deny the truth about Jesus. It's to reject Christ. So this is an important truth we're considering. Spurgeon went on to say that that name, Emmanuel, is wisdom's mystery. It's the wonder of sages. It's the desires of uh, angels. It's hell's terror. It's the laborer's strength. No doubt it would have been for John and Betty Stam to go into places unfamiliar, to go to places to reach people with the gospel who had never heard. It would have been a strength to them to know that they're not alone, even with their little daughter, even if it's just the three of them. There may have been other missionaries, but there was one who was with them every single day and all of the time, even to the point where, as I understand, John was stabbed and Betty was beheaded. Was God there? Of course he was. He was also there with Stephen when Stephen was stoned. John and Betty will be among the martyrs 
And God with us would have been their strength then, but it will be their everlasting consolation because God will be with them and they will be with God. How could he preach the gospel, Spurgeon said? How could he bend his knees in prayer? How could the missionary go into foreign lands? How could the martyr stand at the stake? How could the confessor acknowledge his master? How could men labor if that one word were taken away? And that's encouragement for us. It's encouragement even during this time as you spend time with someone who is not confessing Christ and lost. And you're with them. You might think you're all alone. No, you're not alone. God is with us. And even Christ said, as he ascended into heaven, lo, behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. God with us, Spurgeon said, is the sufferer's comfort. It's the balm of his woe, the alleviation of his Misery is the sleep which with, with which God gives to his beloved. It's their rest after exertion and toil. It's eternity's sonnet. It's heaven's hallelujah. It's the shout of the glorified. It's the song of the redeemed, the chorus of angels, the everlasting oratorio of the great orchestra of the, uh, orchestra of the sky. Tell you what, I wish I could preach like that guy. But just to hear it, God gifting him to meditate and then draw those words, not only the intention of his hearers, but years later we get to meditate because God gave a gift to the church, and now we can think about the significance of that name, Emmanuel. God with us. The Word became flesh and tabernacled, John says, among us. John literally was with him in the mountain, in the garden, in homes as they would go and preach the gospel, in synagogues where he saw people healed. What a privilege this witness has to be with the Word himself. What a blessing to be able to see all that he did, and then, of course, to give us a record of it here in the Gospels. What a comfort that would have been to John, and what an encouragement it would have been to see that same one who he walked with and tabernacled with, that after he went into heaven, remember what John happened to John? John gets exiled to the Isle of Patmos, and this place that would have been a place to labor, a place to work, a place where John is suffering because he's at a distance from his congregation, he cannot minister there, but who comes to him there and makes his manifest presence known? It's the Christ of Revelation 1. What a vision and what a record there that the same Christ who he saw and observed and all the signs that John records now later, much later in John's life, he understands that the risen and glorified Christ is still with him, even there and giving him a vision multiple visions for the church to see. The word became flesh, John says, and dwelt among us. And then he says, and we saw his glory. Now, John's going to write about Revelation later. But he says this here, and he says it in the gospel, and he says it without any reference to Revelation 1. And so when he says here, we saw his glory... And notice the next phrase, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John is giving testimony to his own vision of the glory of the Word, who is God. This little baby in a manger, in other Gospels, yes, he he came and he was laid in a manger, but John doesn't start there in his Gospel. He starts further back at the beginning when the Son, the Word, already existed, and then as he starts to give us a record of what he saw, he's not giving us a record of the very days of his birth. He's giving a record of his sight of the glory of the Word. And what's he talking about? Well, it's interesting if you explore... Just what John says here, we saw his glory. You explore that through John's gospel. And you ask the question, what is the glory of Christ? What is the glory of the word? 
What does that look like? What is that? If, if I'm going to try to capture that, what is the unique excellence that John saw? And of course, John saw many things. Turn over to chapter two for a moment. Remember the miracle that Christ performed at Cana as he turned the water into wine? And I'm not going to read through the miracle, but it is a miracle that they ran out of wine and Jesus in a miracle of creation, turned water into wine so that it had the properties of wine. And there's a testimony to how good it was, verse 10. But verse 11, John says, This beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. So what is the glory of Jesus, what is the glory that John saw? Well, he saw the miracles. That first of seven miracles that are recorded here in the Gospel of John, he turned the water into wine, John 2. He healed the son of the nobleman, John 4. He healed the lame man at the pool of Bethesda. He fed 5,000 people with bread and fish that he multiplied. He walked on water. He healed a blind man, and he raised Lazarus from the dead. That's another one. Turn over to John chapter 11. John chapter 11. Lazarus is sick. Verse 1, it says, Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary, and her sister Martha was Mary the Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. So the sister sent word to him saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. But when Jesus heard this, he said, this sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. John says, we beheld his glory. And Jesus is saying here that this sickness that Lazarus is experiencing is actually for the glory of the Son of God. A little bit later, as he's spoken to Martha and speaking to Martha, look at verse 39. He has come to the tomb. He has seen many others weeping. He's moved in his own spirit. And of course, verse 35, it says, Jesus wept. He did love Lazarus, but he knew what he was going to do. Verse 39, Jesus said, remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he has been dead four days. All right, there's proof. He is dead. And it's going to smell. Jesus said to her, did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? And of course, they saw the glory of God after he prays. Look at verse 41. So they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I know, knew that you always hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it so that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. The man who had died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done believed in him. What did they see? They saw the Son of God in His glory as the one who can raise the dead by His voice. Lazarus, come forth. We don't know exactly what that tomb looked like. I remember one of my professors in seminary talking about the tombs in that area being, being deeper and, and possibly that Lazarus was buried or he was down in a tomb and when Jesus called for him, he was suddenly propelled up and standing at the door. Regardless of the power displayed in his movement, he's suddenly standing at the door at just the voice of Christ, the voice of the word. 
John is witness to this. So we beheld his glory. John is beholding the glory of the Son of God as the one who, as a creator, can turn water into wine, the one who heals, now the one who actually can raise the dead. And he gave testimony himself, Christ did, if I do not the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do them, though you do not believe me, believe the works so that you may understand and know that the Father is in me and I in the Father. He was not only testifying to the truth about him, but the truth about the Father that the Father had sent him. The glory, you could say, of the Father and the Son are wrapped up together so that if the Son's words are true, of course they're true, but if they're true, that means the Father is true. They're linked. But there's actually more glory. Turn over to John chapter 12. There's the glory of the miracles that testify to the fact that he's the Son of God. But look in verse 23 of John chapter 12. It says, And Jesus answered them, saying, Context is some Greeks come to Jesus' disciples and they want to see Jesus. Jesus' disciples, Andrew and Philip, come to tell Jesus that these Greeks want to see him. Verse 23, it says, And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. What glory is he talking about? How is he going to be glorified? Well, there's an illusion there, right? An illusion by the use of the imagery or the, the illustration, there's an allusion to what? To his death. And then the fruit that will come or the life that will come as he dies. Turn over to chapter 13. Look at verse 31. This is after Judas, about to betray Christ, goes out. Verse 31 says, Therefore, when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified. And God, that would be the Father, is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify himself immediately. You can get lost in all the glory and glorified and, 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 and glorify, but what, what is God doing? He's going to glorify himself, and when he says now, there's an hour that has come when you will see the glory of the Son of Man, the glory of the Word, the glory of Jesus. And you might think, you're missing a few things, Pastor, and I would say, you're right. There's a few other things that we're missing because whenever you see Jesus and he does something amazing, you see something of his glory. But what glory there is in the cross and the person on the cross as he's glorified as God's son, who God sent into the world so that everyone who believes on him might have eternal life. Through the cross, we see the glory of God's holiness. Through the cross, we see the glory of God's love. Through the cross, we see the glory of God's wrath, the glory of God's grace, the glory of his mercy, the glory of his justice. God's displaying his glory through his son as he came into the world and laid down his life for sinners. There's no one like that who can... Do that and accomplish it. The humble God comes to earth, lays down his life to give life to others. What a Savior. What a meditation to capture our hearts. What a glorious truth to, to just dispel all this trifling wickedness that the world rejoices in. That's not Christmas. This is Christmas. This is why Christ came into the world. This is salvation. And turn, if you would, back to John chapter 1. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory. And the reason I said you might be thinking you missed something because we did miss something, John actually doesn't record it. 
The other apostles certainly who saw it talk about it. John does talk about it. Matthew, Mark, and Luke wrote about it. And this may be John's opportunity to give testimony to it, although he doesn't detail it. What am I talking about? What am I talking about? John says, we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father. Where the relationship of the Father and the Son is clearly seen and testified to. This relationship that existed from eternity where the Father took delight in the Son. He called him his beloved Son. And he said, listen to him. You know what I'm talking about? I'm talking about the transfiguration. When one person put it, when Jesus lit up. He's there on the mountain. Peter, James, and John are with him. And suddenly, right before their very eyes, his face, his garments, everything, white as light and light shining out from him. And the cloud comes down. Imagine cloud coming down and you have this person who is lit up in the center of that and you're a witness to that? And you get to see that? Would you ever tell someone about it? Well, it's really, it is that scene where you see the essential nature of who Jesus is as God, but it's not only that. That's a, that, that's a vision like no other in terms of what John is seeing in his experience on earth, but John is trying to not only testify to that, but all of the other things that give testimony to the glory of Jesus. So yes, the transfiguration, in fact, if as he says here, we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father. What is emphasized in that scene of transfiguration but the relationship of the Father and the Son? This is my beloved Son. Hear him. It's a testimony from heaven itself. It's when man heard, Peter, James, and John actually heard the voice of the Father giving testimony to the Son. There's no stronger testimony that you could ever hear than the voice of God himself. And he, John here says, he is the only begotten from the Father. That's his glory, this one who is in relation to the Father as the, the Greek word is monogenes, which is an interesting word. Some have suggested based upon the word that this has to do with somehow the generation or even the creation of the Son. They don't pay attention to the other things the Bible clearly says, and they try to seize on a word, and they try to connect this word with the idea of generation, to generate something, to bring uh, it into uh, existence. And they try to latch on to that and say something about the person of Christ that's just not true. And this is a study in and of itself. We don't have time to go all the way through the teaching of God's Word on this Word, but really what this Word is testifying to is the relationship that the Son has with the Father from eternity. He's the only one of His kind in terms of His Sonship. We might become sons of God, children of God through faith in Christ, but we are not sons like Jesus is Son. He is the Son of God. He has been so from eternity, and He's the only one of that kind, which then magnifies the truth about God when it says God sent His Son into this world. John 3.16. What does John say? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. He who spared not His own Son, Paul says in Romans, but delivered Him up for us all, how shall He not with Him freely give us all things? In other words, the uniqueness of 
this person and the specialness of this relationship, if I could put it that way. It's, it's both of those things that testify to who this person is and, and really how do you show forth his glory? Well, practically, you have to write four gospels about that. And then you'd have to talk about the significance of some of those same truths in many, many letters. And then you'd have to have people preach all over the world for generations and decades and centuries and millennia. And then you'd actually have to, you know, you'd probably have to have an eternal world where you're just praising the lamb and you're continuing to show forth his glories. You can't get to the bottom of that. You just can't get to the bottom of that. And we never will but we're starting. And praise the Lord, he's given us a start here in the Gospel of John and a start in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Think about Christ. Special births in the Bible? Yeah, there were some special ones, not like this one. He was born of a virgin. The angel told his mother ahead of time this was going to happen, also told him he was going to told her he was going to be a king. He was going to be in the line or is in the line of David. So special birth, yes. Others had special births, not like this one. And those there were special births, and certainly there's rejoicing. Were there ever other at any other time angels in heaven? Singing, praising God, testifying to the one who had just been born in Bethlehem? Sending the shepherds to go see this baby in a feeding trough, who is Christ, Lord of all? There's no birth like that. No one else had it truly said of him as Simeon holds him in his arms and says, My eyes have seen your salvation. Of no one else could that be said. No one else had a star guiding people from far away to the very home where he was, bringing gifts fit for a king, gold and frankincense. And someone said, but there's myrrh, there's myrrh, like more, there's myrrh. We might laugh, but that myrrh was used at times poured over the grave clothes of someone who had died. The poet said that that actually shadowed forth his sepulcher, what he would come to do. No one like that. No one like that. No one who had a voice from heaven declaring, as the Gospels record, this is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. No one had the Spirit descend from heaven visibly and rest on him and remain on him his entire life and ministry. No one else could it be said and properly testified. This is amazing. For John the Baptist to point to him and say, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, there's no one else like that. <clears throat> Frank Houghton, as he wrote that hymn, traveling over the mountains of Sejuan, thinking about John and Betty Stam, he also wrote these words, Thou who art God beyond all praising, all for love's sake becamest man, stooping so low but sinners raising heavenwards by thine eternal plan. Thou who art God beyond all praising, all for love's sake becamest man. He's addressing Christ. He's talking about Jesus. And he says, thou who art God beyond all praising. We sang a few songs this morning. We're going to, Lord willing, see, sing another one in a few minutes. We're not done. We won't be done next Sunday. We won't be done the Sunday after that. We won't be done. We won't ever be done singing his praises. He's beyond all praising. Thou who art love beyond all telling, Huffton went on to write, Savior and King, we worship thee. 
Emmanuel, within us dwelling, make us what thou wouldst have us be, thou who art love beyond all telling, Savior and King, we worship thee. I think one of the blessings of eternity is going to be seeing others who are also recipients of his love and hearing the testimony of how God showed his grace to them and loved them and gave them the knowledge of salvation. That's a love. It, it, it's too wide. It's too high. It's too deep. I, I can't express that love fully. In fact, Paul says to the Ephesians that he's praying that they would understand the love of Christ, which passes knowledge. That, that they would come to understand something that's actually beyond their full grasp. But you and I can know something of it. Look at the last statement there in John 1.14. This one who John beheld his glory, certainly John saw the miracles, saw the cross, saw the resurrection, saw the ascension, maybe drawing their attention to the transfiguration, the glory of that. And then as I see it, he's just kind of expositing it. He's, he's taking that statement and he's trying to, through his gospel and certainly through his other writings, he's trying to highlight really the glory of Christ, which you're not going to get to the bottom of. But here's another statement for us to meditate on. When it comes to the word who dwelt among us, who John saw his glory, glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John proclaims Christ to be an inexhaustible fountain of grace and truth. This word that's translated full means complete, lacking in nothing, filled up to the top. John says here, full of grace and truth. Those same words are actually used of Stephen in the book of Acts, at least full of grace is. It says of Stephen that he was full of grace and power. But the difference here, the difference between Christ and Stephen is that Stephen would have been the recipient of those things, whereas Christ is the source of those things. Stephen may have exhibited those things because God poured his spirit into Stephen, but this is one who has grace and truth. Grace refers to the divine enablement or favor from God. It can refer to the qualities of a life empowered by God. We speak of Christian graces or Christian virtues. Those Virtues are exhibited by the Spirit's working in the life of a believer, but that's not native to any one of us. Any grace coming out of my life is God's working and His Spirit's working. It's not me, because what comes from your life and my life is what Romans chapter 3 describes. It's sin. We have channels of corruption by which sin just comes. But when it comes to Christ, He is full of grace. And truth. Gracious in his person. Gracious in his coming. He did not have to come. Gracious in his healing, as we see in the Gospels, his many miracles. Gracious in his words, as they hung on his words for all the gracious things that were coming out. Certainly gracious in his offer of salvation. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Not excluding, not pushing away, but if anyone's thirsty, there's water. Water that will satisfy, water that will satisfy not only today, but forever as you believe in Christ. And certainly he was gracious in laying down his life. My dad used to sing, he could have called 10,000 angels to destroy the world and set him free. And he said that to Peter. Don't you think I couldn't call? Of course he could. But he didn't. Which means that he was graciously giving of himself, even to the point of being mocked by sinners and spat upon and crucified. 
What grace. And John goes on to say, look at verse 16. He says, for of his fullness we have all received and grace upon grace. And he contrasts the grace and truth that came through Christ which, with the law that came through Moses. And we don't have time to develop all that that means, but in the very least, I think we could say that what came through Moses was a law that showed us our need, and what came through Christ was the grace and truth to meet that need and to help us to see the realities that Moses in the law, of course, God gave that revelation, was testifying to. J.C. Ryle said it this way, he came full of the gospel of grace in contradistinction to the burdensome requirements of the ceremonial law, he came full of truth, of real solid, true comfort. In contradistinction to the types and figures and shadows of the law of Moses, in short, the full grace of God, the full truth about the way of acceptance were never clearly seen until the word became flesh, dwelt among us on earth, opened the treasure house and revealed grace and truth in his own person. So here... Christ comes, and here is the way of salvation. Here really is the Lamb of God. All those other lambs that were slaughtered were only giving testimony to this one who would come. And as he came, he laid down his life and atoned for our sins. That inexhaustible fountain many have drunk from, that fountain is also a fountain of truth, Jesus said to Pilate, for this I've been born, for this I've come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. You realize everything Jesus said was true. That's a glory of Christ. Because that's not you and that's not me. How often do we exaggerate or sometimes just tell a straight out lie? But he never lied. He never exaggerated. He always said what was true. The truth about the Father, the truth about the Spirit, the truth about Himself, the truth about the devil, the truth about hell, the truth about salvation, which only comes through Him. And what did He say? He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Have you believed in the truth about Jesus Christ? Are you trusting in the truth about Him? And have you experienced the grace of God in salvation? You realize what we're talking about when we think about Christmas. In one sense, we're thinking about His coming into the world, but the reality is, is that Christ is in heaven. His gospel is still being preached, and He's still saving sinners. Today could be the day of your salvation. Today could be the day when you turn from yourself and your sin and you reach out and believe in Jesus Christ and have what he promised, that water of everlasting life, the forgiveness of your sins, the presence of the Holy Spirit within. You are a child of the devil and a child of this world, but you could become today through faith in Jesus Christ a child of God. You have to put your faith in him. You have to trust in him. You have to turn from your sins. And you will find that fountain rich, as the songwriter said, and sweet and eternal. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Just as I'm about to pray, I just ask you, if you do not know the Lord Jesus as your Lord and Savior, Have you considered it? And what is keeping you from believing it and confessing it to be the truth? And I just want to encourage you to come to Christ today. Don't wait. Don't push it off. Don't delay. And if you need help, I'd be glad to help you. Oh, members of our church would be glad to point you to the truth of the gospel and sit down with you and help you understand clearly what it means to become a child of God. Father in heaven, 
we do pray and thank you today for the word becoming flesh, dwelling among us. Thank you for the vision that your word gives us of his glory. And we anticipate, Lord, with great joy, seeing with our own eyes, but now we see through the eye of faith the glory of Christ. And we pray, Lord, that even as we ponder and meditate during this time, during this week, that we'd think about what really Christmas is about. It's about Christ. It's about his glory. It's about his coming in the flesh. And we pray also that the the trifles and the trivialities of the world would dissipate in our thinking. And Lord, that we would share the truth about Christmas with others. Give us grace even this week to be bold witnesses for Christ. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.